welcome to Episode 9 of Emergency Medicine Operations Management, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. Joseph Carisco, Emergency Department Chair at Oshner Hospital in New Orleans, and member of the AAEM Operations Management Committee, speaks with Adam Salop, Strategic Program Manager at Oshner Health Systems. Today, Dr. Garisco and Mr. Salop discuss a study conducted regarding opioid prescription rates at Oshner Hospital. Adam, I want to thank you for joining this call with me today to talk about one of the hottest issues in healthcare and specifically emergency medicine. So just for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about your role at the Oxford Health System New Orleans and what are your responsibilities and, and the work that you do there? Sure. Thank you for having me as well. This is actually work that we're really proud of and we're trying to kind of get in front of as many people as we can because our results have been fantastic. So I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of advertise a lot of what we're doing. So at Oshner Health Systems, I am a strategic program manager. And what that basically means is we have strategic initiatives that we want to tackle as a system. And I, in my role, I help to implement some of those things. So one of the big things, as we're talking about on the phone now, is the opioid epidemic and really what our response is going to be. So as the manager of this program, I'm really shepherding what we're doing and the changes and how we're going to be managing not only the opioid prescribing, but also pain management and some of the things that kind of fall within that purview of this whole epidemic. Okay. Well, I know the media has been pretty hot on this topic, and I I was hoping you could maybe frame up how big of a problem this is in the U.S. compared to the rest of the world. Is this a U.S. problem, or is this uh, this isolated to the United States? Yeah. To be honest, it is primarily a problem in America. America represents only about 5% of the world's population, but we're responsible for about 80% of opioid prescribing. And so you do see pockets of it in other parts of the world. I know a consortium from France actually visited us about six months ago to kind of talk to us because they're starting to see it pop up a little bit there. But as far as kind of the level of the impact and, and how and how wide it's been and how it really impacts everybody, no other country is facing what we're facing in the United States. Right. So, yeah, I think that's becoming well known. 5% of the population is controlling 85% of the opioid use in the world. That's significant. And so drilling down a little bit more, talking about emergency medicine, if you look at the U.S. healthcare utilization of opioids, how does emergency medicine stack up? What's its contribution to the crisis? Most people think emergency medicine, because that's where patients with pain go, is probably a a huge contributor to the opioid crisis. But what does the data show? Yeah, so I would say that's true. What the data shows is that a lot of times people who get opioids for the first time get them in short doses. So it might be some acute pain that they may get something as an inpatient. But when they keep continuing to come back into the hospital, a lot of times they're coming back through the emergency room. What we're finding right now is the people that frequent our hospital most, what we call our super utilizers, 80% of them are for something related to pain, either migraines or dental pain or back pain or leg pain, just something kind of within that pain spectrum. And so with 80% of the people coming in through pain, right now, a lot of times those patients would get a couple more days worth of pills and kind of be on their way. What we're doing as a system right now is we're trying to get them to their appropriate level of care. 
So obviously for chronic pain, opioid isn't the ultimate solution that we want to instill on them. We want to get them into some treatment. So maybe moving them more out of the ED into other areas of the hospital. Right. Yeah, I think the prescription rate for opioids for emergency medicine is somewhat to be challenged. But when we do look at the data, I know we've looked at this at Oxford. When we do look at the data, it turns out emergency physicians do prescribe on average about 14 pills per prescription, and they do tend to utilize uh, short-acting opioids. And so there is a misperception that emergency physicians are prescribing large doses of powerful opioids, and that turns out not to be true, even though we do see a significant number of patients with pain management issues. So well, that's it, true. Yeah. yeah. So it's not the morphine equivalent of that prescription. It's actually a lot less than most areas. So right now in our ED, we've actually lowered it pretty significantly what actually the prescription is. And I can talk about that a little bit later about how we did that. But yeah. it's about nine times less than what we would see in our clinic. So you're right. It's a couple days worth, but the frequency is something that we want to make sure yeah. that less patients are leaving the ED with opioids and we're treating that pain in the appropriate setting. Right. So it's certainly a U.S. problem and certainly a significant issue in emergency medicine. And I know the American College of Emergency Physicians and it has challenged emergency physicians to do a better job. But maybe we could talk about how we got to this point. So how did pain management become such an issue where emergency physicians felt they were compelled to write opiates and opioids for patients at discharge? Where do you think that came from? Any awareness of that? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of papers that have been written about this, and the most frequent place that we hear about is the fifth vital sign, where physicians were told, we're not doing enough to treat pain. And so if you think about it as a pendulum, where we were treating pain, it went to the point where now we need to treat all pain and every pain, and anytime someone comes in with everything, we need to make sure that we're treating that as best we can, and, and more appropriately, we may have been over-treating it. And so we saw the pendulum swing, and now we're kind of in this place where we're hearing about the epidemic and we're hearing about the impact that it's having long-term and the pendulum is starting to swing the other way. Now, that's really important to note that we want to be careful because we don't want it to swing it too far the other way and again, start under-treating pain and not be giving the appropriate medicine because we're afraid to now because of the impact that it's having. Right. I, th I think you're right. It started, I think, with the Joint Commission that made pain assessment a requirement as one of the early triage interventions was how is your pain. And so interventions for pain management became a hot topic with the Joint Commission. And it certainly got popularized with uh, patient satisfaction surveys. I know the patient satisfaction surveys specifically ask patients how were their pain managed in the emergency department. So you have the Joint Commission pushing pain management. You have patient satisfaction measuring pain management. And then you had lots of emergency physicians being compensated on patient satisfaction. So there are, I think, a number of issues that you highlighted that drove emergency physicians to be very liberal with pain management therapies in the emergency department. And so I think that's clearly was the genesis for this crisis, certainly in emergency medicine. What I want to do is make sure the audience understands that we're going to focus on a unique solution at Oxner. There are lots of initiatives and not so much talk about pain management for the acute care of the patient in the ED in terms of giving therapies, pain management, narcotics for, say, sickle cell or kidney stones. I really want to focus on what happens at discharge and what Oxner has done to significantly curb the opioid prescription rates at discharge, which we think is the genesis of a lot of downstream opioid abuse. And so for the next few minutes, maybe we can focus on the ED solution 
and we'll come back to some of the larger issues that uh, you and Auctioner are doing. There's national data on opioid prescribing rates for emergency medicine. Can you sort of tell us what you understand that data to be in terms of average opioid prescribing rates, and then right. maybe so, frame up how Oxnard emergency medicine, how it's scaled out around that national average? Sure. In our research, we, we found that the national prescribing rate out of the ED is 17%. So basically, just about one in six patients who come to the ED nationally are getting prescribed an opioid. When we looked at our data and we looked at our ED physicians, Data transparency was a big reason for our success here. So we looked at all of our physicians and all of their prescribing rates. And there was quite a range. Some physicians that are prescribing at 2%, and we had some physicians that were prescribing at 30 40%. What was interesting that we learned was that a lot of times the physicians prescribe, and they're prescribing in a silo. So they have no idea how they're prescribing versus their colleague or someone within a different ED. And they never thought they were maybe the ones that were on the high end of that spectrum. The first thing we did with that is we had everyone's prescribing rate and we blinded the name. And we made that public for all the doctors to see. And we said, here's how everyone's prescribing. We're not going to tell you where you fall on this list, but we want to let you know that this is kind of how everyone's doing. And we wanted to see what influence that would have on prescribing rates. And I think everyone who kind of looked at that list still kind of assumed that they were on the lower end. And so after a couple months of that, we said, okay, well, now we're going to unblind the data and actually show you where you find yourself on this list. And I think the people who ended up at the top of the list were kind of shocked that they were some of the highest prescribing people and had no idea that they were falling in that area. So the biggest impact I would say we had to prescribing was really the outlier prescribers or the people that were prescribing the most. They tended to regress down to the mean, closer to that 17%. When we started this project back in July, we were prescribing as a system around 25%, so about one in four. And we didn't know that until we looked at the data. And since we've implemented this, those high prescribers have kind of understood that they're prescribing more than the national average. And so they've regressed very significantly. And as a system, we're actually prescribing at 15% this past month. We almost got our prescribing in half, and the big driver for that was data transparency and sharing that information with all of our physicians. Right. I want to go back and dig a little deeper into this conceptually. So there's lots of initiatives out there that are trying to manage emergency physician utilization of all types of resources, CT scans, MRIs, whatever. One most recently that was successful was the efforts to decrease inappropriate antibiotic usage for viral illness. That study basically cataloged not just emergency, but all physicians looking at viral diagnoses and looking at the prescription rate for antibiotics for viral diagnoses or URI. And that information was distributed to physicians. Once physicians saw their prescribing patterns for antibiotics, they quickly moved to the mean and below the mean just by being right. aware of the data. So we took that conceptually and applied it to the opioid problem. And exactly as you said, we mapped the data by physician, each physician's opioid prescribing rate for discharge patients, and distributed that to each emergency department in a blinded fashion for several months. Then we unblinded it, and we watched physician behaviors change. And the results were, as you said, a 40% decrease in opioid prescribing. It gave us an elegant solution. 
there are other ways to control physician practice, and you can do it through compensation plans, through punitive measures, through education. There's, there's lots of ways to alter and change physician prescribing patterns. And this turns out to be a, a very elegant and simple way that you can affect physician prescribing patterns, specifically with opioids, and that is by unblinded publication of opioid prescribing rates by physician and the realization and behavior changes that come about by that transparency produce significant results. And, and that would be true for any resource, whether it's CT, MRI, or opioids. I think you agree that that was the overall conceptual approach, and the results have been pretty fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I did want to touch on two things that we kind of did that we felt we had to do before we really started this, and that was showing our support to our physicians. So you mentioned before the age caps and kind of how that had impact and uh, around prescribing. What we first did is we looked at prescribing rate versus age caps to see if there was any correlation. Because the idea was that, at least from with the customer, that if I don't prescribe an opioid, my patient is going to give me a bad rating or they're going to you know, say something bad about me in the public forum. We saw that there was absolutely no correlation between prescribing and HCAP scores. What actually helped more than anything was the explanation behind whether you were going to prescribe or not. So if you're not going to prescribe saying why you're not, or if you're going to prescribe something else and not an opioid, the explanation behind that actually was more of a driver than actually prescribing or not. So that was the first thing we did. We wanted to make sure that this wouldn't negatively impact HCAP scores. The other thing we did was we helped to level some standards and some policy around what we felt was appropriate to prescribe in the ED. And so we want to make sure that any ED that a patient goes to, because Auctioner has a dozen of them, that they would get the same level of care and that there were standards put into place and that the rules that we set were supported by our system leadership. And so we put a simple list of 10 things that basically said, here's the guidelines that we want our doctors to follow. And these are the guidelines that we're going to support you on. So if you get into a situation where you don't feel like you have the support, we want to make sure that you know that these are the things that we're going to support you with. And we've successfully supported them for months throughout this initiative. Those are great points. And I'll just reemphasize that. So, you know, there's great concern amongst physicians that their patient satisfaction scores would deteriorate. And since they were being paid basically on patient satisfaction as a component, they're worried that the not prescribing opioids would negatively impact the patient SAT scores and then negatively impact their compensation. So we have run this now for about a year, month after month, through each department, and we find no correlation between opioid prescribing rates and negative impact on patient satisfaction. So that's huge. And so that certainly has helped physicians relieve themselves of the anxiety about the impact of opioid prescribing rates on patient satisfaction. The other thing we did too, and you mentioned that, is the patient sat was one issue, but secondly, it was the, the difficult conversation with patients about opioid prescriptions. And you mentioned this, but one of the things that was done is that we developed policies, procedures, posters, anything that could help the emergency physician sort of offload the responsibility of not prescribing an opioid and be able to frame up the reasons why they weren't doing it based on new policies and procedures. So we did everything possible. I know you were a big contributor to that, developing these policies that would enable the emergency physician to feel comfortable not prescribing an opioid based on good practice and policy and procedure, and that helped a great deal. So I think both those things were big enablers 
for emergency physicians to not prescribe opioids when they felt it was inappropriate. Right. Everyone wants to do the right thing, of course, here. And so making sure that our physicians knew that they had full support of the system, I think, was very helpful. Right. So again, the project at Oxford proved that behavior modification in terms of opioid prescription rates could be done fairly simply and elegantly with very low conflict through the project that was developed. Can you talk a little bit about, in the few minutes we have left, Adam, about taking this to the larger scope throughout the hospital? I know Oxford has done lots of other things with managing opioid prescriptions and opioid management outside of the ED. What are some of the other things that has really worked on the system from the larger perspective? Yeah, so I would say the first place that we met was the ED, and we're looking at mirroring that success into other areas of the hospital. So similar to what we did in the ED, we're bringing that into our hospital and our clinics, where we're developing best practices, we're doing data transparency, and we're you know sharing that with some of our physicians to make sure that everyone is aligned and understands what the expectations are. One thing I will say that we did in the ED that we're also bringing to everywhere else is we're trying to follow CDC and CMS guidelines, and we're trying to embed that within our EMR, which we use EPIC. What that means is when someone goes to prescribe out of the ED now, there is a recommended amount of tablets that will be linked with that prescription. So before, it was blank. And now we'd use that three to five day, three to seven day range, depending on which medication it is we'd use that to put in default amounts of this medication. So instead of, say, maybe 20 pills, that patient would get 18, and that would fall within the guidelines. In addition to doing that in the ED, which drove down our morphine equivalents, we're starting to do a lot more of that standardization within the hospital setting so that there's less variation in the amount of actual pills that get prescribed with that prescription. Yeah, I think a lot of things were done in the background with our EHR to sort of manage this a little bit better. I want to do one more fact, and then I want to sort of summarize things with your help, Adam. So, you know, interestingly enough, we looked at not only opioid prescribing rates, but we did look at the specific drugs that were being prescribed and the strength of those drugs. And so not all opioids are created equal. One interesting finding we found was that the second most prescribed opioid was tramadol. And to our not total surprise, there are lots of physicians who had not realized that tramadol is considered an opioid. And so right. a lot of physicians thought they were getting around the opioid problem by writing tramadol. Well, it is an opioid, and it's actually prescribed about 30% of the time. Hydrocodone mm-hmm. is number one at 53%. So the point I'm trying to make is that we did education. We educated the patient, and we educated the physician in a number of ways. And that was one sort of interesting finding. So let me just frame it up, and I want you to sort of close out with some comments. So if you look at the project overall, the the key thing is getting good data, getting good opioid prescribing data by physician. The second thing is unblinding that data so that the data is open to all physicians in a group. And related to that, we try not to be judgmental. It's just data. The third thing is disconnecting compensation and patient satisfaction from the opioid prescribing data. Not because we think it has an impact on patient satisfaction, but it certainly helps to diminish any connection to compensation for opioid prescribing habits, at least in the short run, until people feel confident that the data supports the fact that opioid prescribing rates do not impact patient satisfaction. So that was important. And related to all that was developing policies and procedures and EPIC solutions in terms of automating prescribing practice that sort of closed the loop on the whole concept. So I think those are the sort of key components of an opioid management program for emergency medicine. 
So I'm going to hold right there to Adam, let you sort of frame it up in the way that you see it in terms of things you've learned, whether you want to highlight any aspects of the project that you think are key to the audience. Yeah, I just want to say a couple things. So the intention of this project wasn't to drive prescribing down to zero. We were looking at appropriate prescribing. And so that's kind of why we use the benchmark of 17% and other national rates to kind of give us a guide as to what we should be doing. In addition to prescribing and that rate, our focus was also to drive down what was in that prescription. So the morphine equivalent of that prescription, what you mentioned, that all opioids are, are created equal. So do they need to be getting 10 pills? Is five pills more appropriate? So we wanted to standardize that and drive that down. A couple of things that I wanted to highlight as key points, though, and it's kind of built into a bigger overall kind of system approach. Patients need to have their pain treated in some form or fashion, particularly if it's chronic pain. We realize that the ED may not be the most appropriate place for that pain to be treated. So if patients who are not going to our EDs anymore, you know, they're going somewhere else. And so one thing that was important to us was to have a full system approach to it to make sure that we're not just taking patients and not treating them in the ED, but we're getting them into a place and we're partnering either with things in the community or other areas of our hospital to make sure that those patients do have a pathway to get the proper level of treatment for that pain. Right. Yeah, that sort of brings to mind a couple of pitfalls. I wanted to make sure we close with lessons learned. And one of the lessons learned is that that you have to be clear that the goal is not to drive opioid prescription rates to zero. We don't know what the appropriate opioid prescribing rate should be. We know the national average is 17%. We know it was 25% at Oxford and now is down below 15%. So we know that, but we don't know what it should be. And so one of the key messages that we needed to get out early was that this was not meant to be judgmental. It wasn't meant to be punitive. There may be, for some departments, depending on the locations and patient population, they may have higher opioid prescribing rates than other EDs. And so it was really important not to be judgmental so that it wouldn't be received as a negative campaign. I think we clearly made that statement. It wasn't easy, but it was important to continue to restate and re-message that there was no judgmental aspect of this project. We don't know what the rate should be. Some EDs will have higher rates. Some physicians may have higher rates depending on where they work. So we didn't know. We wanted to create a thoughtful pause, and that was the key thing, that before you write an opioid prescription, a thoughtful pause, is there an alternative approach to management of this patient's pain? And that's all we were asking, just do a thoughtful pause. There's no compensation attached to it, no patient sat attached to it, nothing punitively, no repercussions, that we just want to create a thoughtful pause. And I think the data transparency and the messaging was really, really important through this. And that's probably the biggest lesson learned and the biggest potential pitfall is that you may have a pretty negative reception from your physician group if it's not approached and managed and messaged appropriately. So Adam, anything in closing, anything we did not address or anything you think the audience should know about or hear about before we close? Uh, no, I just want to commend the physicians at Oshner. They've really kind of taken this and owned this and are working hard. Everyone was supportive of this initiative. And so I felt like this wasn't <laughs> it wasn't one of the harder things to help to kind of promote. I think our physicians certainly want to get the right level of care to our patients as well. And so working with our physicians and making sure that they had the right information and we gave them the tools to act on it, you know, they kind of took it and ran with it and produced something very successful. So I just want to commend them and they did a fantastic job. Yeah, and I think the success, the fact that we've seen almost a 50% reduction in OPR prescribing across the emergency departments, and with some physicians, an 80% reduction in their personal opioid prescribing rates, I think it was well-received and very successful. And so anyway, Adam, I want to thank you for joining me on this call to get awareness of this project, a very successful project at Oxner. 
for the emergency physicians. And again, uh, thanks again, Adam, for joining. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out AAEM Connect, where you can engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next episode as the AAEM Operations Management Committee will discuss another topic of importance for emergency physicians.